Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Fugitive for Justice, Angela Davis. In the early 1990s, Angela Davis attended a performance at a San Francisco jail. She knew some of the women who performed and went backstage to see them after the show. One of them had a brother who could not at first place the name of Angela Davis. Suddenly, she writes, a flicker of recognition flashed across his face. Oh, he said, Angela Davis, the Afro. After relating this story, Davis admits that it was both humiliating and humbling to be remembered as a hairdo. Already at the height of her fame and her infamy, Davis was literally iconic. The round glasses, the ample natural hair. But it would be a travesty to remember her just for this, and not much better to remember her only for the second most famous thing about her, namely that in a series of events that was itself something of a travesty, in this case a travesty of justice, Davis was charged with collusion in a kidnapping and murder case. This was in August of 1970. She became a fugitive but was apprehended after two months and then kept in jail for 16 months, during which she was subjected to various forms of harsh treatment, ranging from unnecessary strip searches to solitary confinement to squalid conditions. Finally, she was released on bail and then found not guilty in a jury trial on June 4, 1972. During this two-year ordeal, Davis was often in the headlines, and most Americans would have known her as more than just a hairdo. She was familiar to both allies and enemies as one of the most provocative, radical, and eloquent activists in the Black liberation movement. And she was notorious for her willingness to identify openly as a communist. But even then, many might not have known that she was also a philosopher, and not just in the capacious sense we've mostly been using in this series, where we've applied it to a wide range of thinkers and writers who produced philosophically insightful and intriguing ideas. She was, and still is, a professional academic, who at the time of her two-year ordeal had already been working as an assistant professor of philosophy at UCLA. How did someone in that position wind up as one of America's most wanted, and what did her philosophical expertise have to do with her activism? Those are the questions we'll be answering in this episode. We'll have considerable help from Davis herself, since we can draw on her autobiography, published in 1974 in the wake of her trial. As we mentioned last time, it was put out under the editorship of Toni Morrison, who was thanked prominently in the acknowledgments. As we also mentioned, Davis was somewhat reluctant to write the book, feeling it would be presumptuous to do so when she was as young as she was. She was also leery of the feminist concept that the personal is political. Davis's approach was instead to take the political personally. We can see this from the sketch of her childhood in the autobiography, in which she notes that her family belonged to the not-so-poor in that they had enough to eat. Which is not to say that she was insulated from racial injustice. The family had been among the first to move into a white area of Birmingham, Alabama, and when other Black-owned homes were blown up by whites trying to enforce segregation, the neighborhood became known as Dynamite Hill. Davis's own story, though, was largely one of talent being rewarded. With the support of the American Friends Service Committee, she was able to attend a high school in New York City and went on to study at Brandeis University in Paris and in Frankfurt. These experiences shaped her as a thinker since she also had the opportunity to work with such luminaries as Herbert Marcuse and Theodor Adorno. When she returned from Germany to the United States, 
feeling an urgent need to throw herself into the liberation struggle at home, she was able to reunite with Marcuse at University of California, San Diego, and continue working towards her doctorate. Davis's relatively fortunate trajectory was sometimes held against her, as when the prosecution at her trial snidely noted that while she was pursuing an academic career in Europe and California, her co-defendant had studied law books in his cell. But from early on, Davis had an instinctive and unshakable sense of solidarity with victims of oppression. As we'll see, her legal troubles started because of her outrage at a miscarriage of justice inflicted on complete strangers. And already in her youth, she was appalled by the poverty of the Black community in Birmingham, which she couldn't help contrasting to the relative affluence of the white community. That led her to embrace socialist ideas as a teenager, thanks to the radical circles in which her parents moved, and to a high school teacher who introduced her to the study of Marx. Then at Brandeis, she avidly sought inspiration from an earlier generation of black icons. She attended a talk by Malcolm X and was impressed, though couldn't relate to his religious perspective. In an anecdote that neatly encapsulates the historical moment, she relates how she was disappointed to miss a talk by James Baldwin at Brandeis after it was called off on account of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Davis had read every writing of Baldwin's she could get her hands on. Also, in a turn of events that would have presumably seemed less momentous to Davis herself, she took a French class at Brandeis with my mother. Yes, that's right. Like the connection we were able to draw between Chike's mom and the family of Walter Rodney, this is another generational indicator that our story of Africana philosophy is arriving at the present. Naturally, while writing this episode, I asked my mother what she remembered about Angela Davis, and after a pause, she said, well, her French was really good. Once in California, Davis found herself in only partial agreement with the men at the forefront of black nationalism. It annoyed her when Stokely Carmichael gave a speech at a rally to free Huey P. Newton, in which he dismissed Marx as a white man irrelevant to black liberation and argued that we have to forget about socialism, which is a European creation, and have to start thinking about African communalism. Davis joined the Black Panther political party, which, as she emphasizes in the autobiography, is not to be confused with the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, the outfit run by Newton and Seal. In fact, Davis was threatened at gunpoint by a member of the more famous Panthers who wanted the organization she was part of to give up the name. She notes, in fairness to Newton and Seal, that the man who threatened her was later expelled as an agent provocateur. Her main organizational platform at this stage was the Los Angeles branch of SNCC, which was relatively autonomous, but eventually collapsed after the main SNCC leadership withdrew its support. Ultimately, she could find ideological satisfaction only with the communists. She joined the Communist Party and a black youth organization associated with it, the Che Lumumba Club, in 1968, and traveled to Cuba to harvest sugarcane alongside her new comrades. To understand the appeal of Marxism to Davis, we can turn to a piece she wrote in jail and published in 1977 called Women and Capitalism, Dialectics of Oppression and Liberation. Marx himself did not apply his ideas to racial or sexual liberation, but Davis saw that simply as a gap for her to fill. On her analysis, in pre-modern human societies, the woman was only a creature of nature, whose opportunities were restricted to fulfilling the needs of men by bearing children and maintaining the home. Of course, Davis was no fan of capitalism, but she saw its advent as a significant opportunity to establish gender equality. From the point of view of capital, workers are, or at least should be, interchangeable sources of labor. As she puts it, 
It does not matter who does the work, only that it be done. So, in a capitalist society, one would expect that men and women should be called upon to provide the same sorts of labor. Both genders might take care of the kids or work at the factory. It might be exploitation of the working class, but it would at least be even-handed exploitation. Davis argues that only social as opposed to economic forces prevented this from happening. Because male workers are indeed exploited and alienated within capitalism, their home life is the only arena in which they can still exercise autonomy and authority. This is why working-class men oppress women and continue to force them into the same old forms of gendered labor. As Davis writes, women are socially imprisoned within natural roles that are no longer naturally necessary. The upshot is that the abstract promise of equality has remained unfulfilled. Thus, mainstream feminists in the 1970s were deluding themselves by seeking liberation without challenging capitalism. Only a socialist revolution would do the trick. Here, we see Davis deploying sophisticated intellectual tools to echo the critique of mainstream, mostly white feminism that we've seen from other black feminists of the era. When it came to criticism of black male leaders, by contrast, Davis didn't need to reach for her Marxist instruments, she could just opine that those leaders were sexist pigs. For example, they excluded women from leadership positions, letting female members of the organization do most of the work and then taking credit for it themselves. In the autobiography, she notes that activist men would often confuse their political activity with an assertion of their maleness. She calls out, among others, Malana Karenga and Amiri Baraka for their macho attitudes. Obviously, this again echoes a polemic we find in other contemporary black feminists, but the combination of her philosophical training and her open communism made Davis a distinctive figure among this group, and at the same time, put a target on her back. There was an effort to force her out of UCLA over her political sympathies, so that leftist sympathizers were offering her support even before the momentous confrontation with the government in 1970. Davis was drawn into that confrontation because of her efforts on behalf of some men she didn't even know, George Jackson, Flita Drongo, and John Cluchette, the so-called Soledad brothers. They were accused of killing a guard at Soledad prison in January of 1970. Davis threw herself into the cause of their defense and became especially close to one of the men, George Jackson, who was himself killed in prison in 1971 in what she interpreted as an extrajudicial execution. Davis went from activist to accused when Jackson's teenage brother, Jonathan, attacked a courtroom, taking the judge and members of the jury hostage and freeing several prisoners. Davis's connection was just that the guns used in the attack were registered under her name, which was enough to set off a legal nightmare that lasted for almost two full years. Such an experience would be a turning point in anyone's life, but because Davis was who she was, it was also a turning point in her philosophical career. She uses the story of her flight from the law and agonizing journey through a maze of federal and state prisons and courtrooms as a framing device for her autobiography. It joins the memoirs of Douglas, Malcolm X, and as we just covered last time, Maya Angelou, as an effort to address larger issues of injustice by telling the author's life story. Given the centrality of the jail experience, it's especially tempting to draw a comparison to the autobiography of Malcolm X. Here too, we see that incarceration can facilitate radicalization. Of course, Davis was already plenty radical before she was put in prison, but she took the opportunity to educate her sisters, as when she was asked by one inmate to define imperialism, did so, and got the response, you mean treating people in other countries the way black people are treated here? 
Davis's time behind bars also made her reflect on the purpose of prison. Together with fellow radical Bettina Apteker, she edited an anthology of prison writing called If They Come in the Morning, Voices of Resistance. In her own contribution, she points out that the seemingly clear line between criminals and political prisoners is systematically blurred by the state. Those in power take it as axiomatic that any challenge to their authority can only be a violation of the law. So political troublemakers are clapped into chains on a thin pretext or not at all. As Davis puts it, a political event is reduced to a criminal event in order to affirm the absolute invulnerability of the existing order. In the American context, this policy can be traced back to the days of slavery, when legal instruments were used against anyone who attempted to challenge the slave system, always with the pretense that there were no political prisoners, there were only criminals. A still deeper point is this. The whole point of a legal system, we might assume, is that everyone stands equal before it. But in fact, since it is specifically the people who are oppressed by the state that have the best reason to challenge it, legal institutions like prisons are actually not meant for everyone. They are an instrument of class domination. Even if the victims are not political activists like Davis, they are nearly always people whose crimes respond to social inequality. After all, rich people don't commit muggings and break-ins. So a person who steals and winds up in jail is, whether they know it or not, engaging in a kind of protest against class injustice, even if this sort of protest only challenges the symptoms of capitalism, but not its essence. This is pure Davis. In a brilliant inversion, she first observes that the state tries to make all political prisoners mere criminals, and then argues that mere criminals are in a sense political prisoners. In Davis's later career, she would continue to work on behalf of prisoners and to critique the incarceration regime of the United States, which is why she was in attendance at that performance we mentioned at the start of this episode. In fact, she was a pioneering voice in the cause of prison abolition, now a rather familiar cause that she was already supporting decades ago. Indeed, her book, Are Prisons Obsolete?, came out exactly 20 years ago in 2003. Here and elsewhere, she has compared the elimination of prisons to the abolition of slavery, which shows, among other things, that racist institutions have been successfully dismantled in America's past, in part, as she points out, in response to organized social movements. And there's another long-standing feature of her intellectual work that can be traced to her own time as an inmate. In her communications with Soledad brother George Jackson, she found that Jackson was rather dismissive about the role of women in the history of the struggle for racial liberation. And as we've noted, that was an attitude she found being held by plenty of other men in the movement. So despite the scarce reading materials at her disposal, she plunged into a research project on the defiance shown by black women all the way back to the time of slavery. An essay on this topic appeared in 1971. It refers to the myth of black matriarchy that was being refuted by other feminists of the era and argues for a completely different reading of the slave family than one could find in that provocative government document, the Moynihan Report. Davis refutes the report's notion that women slaves presided over their precarious families with the result that men were excluded or even emasculated. To the contrary, she says, it was only in domestic life, away from the eyes and whip of the overseer, that the slaves could attempt to assert the modicum of freedom they still retained. Within this context, women could and did show solidarity with their menfolk. This could mean getting involved in violent uprisings, or as noted in a later book called Women, Race, and Class, it could mean doing domestic labor together with men. In fact, Davis claims in this book that, 
The salient theme emerging from domestic life in the slave quarters is one of sexual equality. The book also broadens her earlier attempts to write women back into a story from which they had so often been excluded. Davis offers a kind of history of radical women's Africana philosophy without any gaps, detailing the achievement of pretty well all the women we've mentioned in our own series and more besides. Sarah and Angelina Grimke, Maria Stewart, Sojourner Truth, Lucy Parsons, Ella Reeve Bloor, Anita Whitney, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and of course, Claudia Jones. Just as Davis had an instinctive solidarity with the poor and oppressed of her own time, she naturally identified with thinkers of former generations. When imprisoned in New York, she found herself wondering whether the books she found in the jail library had been read by Claudia Jones before her. Another predecessor mentioned in Women, Race, and Class is Ida B. Wells, who long before Davis spoke out fearlessly against lynching and against myths about the rape of white women by black men. Drawing on Wells and also Frederick Douglass, Davis astutely observes that charges of sexual violence were used to drive a wedge between black people and whites who might otherwise sympathize with them. As soon as the propagandistic cry of rape became a legitimate excuse for lynching, former white proponents of black equality became increasingly afraid to associate themselves with black people's struggle for liberation. Like prison, sexual violence against black women and accusations of sexual violence against black men are used to maintain social hierarchy. Davis made this point already in a 1975 essay, which she wrote in response to the murder charges brought against Joanne Little, a young black woman who killed her rapist. In an anticipation of the later concept of intersectionality, she noted that Little's case shows the connection between racism and sexism. This is because sexual violence, whether real or only alleged, causes outrage only to the extent that accepted power dynamics are violated. If a working-class black man assaults a bourgeois white woman, the whole country is up in arms, whereas an upper-class white man assaulting a black woman is just enjoying his inborn privileges, in the tradition of masters who rape their slaves. As for sexual violence without class or race difference, this is hardly noticed, because it has no political resonance. We would perhaps have expected an activist thinker like Davis to turn to figures like Wells and Jones for inspiration. Less predictable is her interest in the figures covered in her 1999 book, Blues Legacies and Black Feminism, namely the singers Gertrude Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and Billie Holiday. Or maybe it is not so surprising, given the recurring relevance of music in 20th century Africana thought, from spirituals to funk, reggae, and Afrobeat. In this book, Davis turns to the blues and expresses surprise that the topic has not been integrated into intellectual history as it might be, given that the blues emerged as an art form around the time of the Harlem Renaissance. In a line that will ring bells for us, if not play a blues progression, she says that her book will illustrate how feminist traditions are not only written, they are oral. Indeed, she pays extensive attention to the lyrics of songs by Rainey and Smith and the way that their songs explored such themes as lesbianism and sexual violence. As she mordantly remarks, violence against women was always an appropriate topic of women's blues. On her reading, blues represented a shift from the musical forms that grew out of slavery. That music had been collective, a means of solidarity, whereas blues singing allows individuals to express their own viewpoints and desires, even when these blatantly contradicted mainstream ideological assumptions regarding women and being in love. Davis's penchant for undoing historical injustices, as well as those of her own day, is on show in her treatment of the great Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit. 
She debunks stories suggesting that Holliday barely understood the significance of this powerful protest against lynching, and thus restores, as it were, a real voice to its singer. Which is not to say that Davis thought that racism, capitalism, or for that matter, prisons, could be sung out of existence. Her preferred solution was rather, as we've already mentioned, socialist revolution. But it's a long road from here to there, and Davis knows it. So in the meantime, she's in favor of something more practical, mass movements that bring pressure to bear against those who defend the status quo. She witnessed that form of power working on her own behalf, when popular outcry prevented her from being fired for being a communist, and again during her trial, when the judge alluded to the amazing interest in her case when she was finally released on bail, though he insisted that he was not yielding to popular pressure. In that essay on Joanne Little, Davis makes the point in more general terms, the only force powerful enough to reverse the normal oppressive course of events is the organized might of great numbers of people. Over her long career, which still continues today, Davis has combined activism with philosophical writing and teaching, steadily working to encourage those great numbers to exercise their organized might. It was never her hairdo that made her a powerful force in this cause, it was her intellect and the example she set. After all, she fought the law, and the law didn't win. The subject of our next episode reflected publicly on her fight with something else, breast cancer. This formidable foe inspired philosophical reflections that she shared with the world in a 1980 book called The Cancer Journals. She was the black lesbian poet Audre Lorde, whose philosophical influence over black feminism as it has developed since her time is immense. Take, for example, the popularity of her claim that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. But what does this mean? Can our podcast tools illuminate this house of the Lord? We'll find out next time here on the History of Africana Philosophy. <music>